You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Amen. We're going to be in finishing up the chapter 6 of Judges, Judges starting in verse 36, and we'll go through chapter 7 this morning, um, just thinking about um, the text. It's in many ways, we'll see as we get into it that it is one of those victorious texts. Uh, Israel is going to find themselves having an amazing victory uh, towards the end of our our time this morning. But at the same way, um, at the same time, uh, there's a a sweet tenderness to the text, mainly because we often see that God's victory comes through human weakness. Um, and as, um, as we pray every single week, you may think, man, I've, I've never been to a church that prays so long or prays right before a sermon that long. And uh, that wasn't because we told Pastor Jeff or Pastor Caleb or whoever prays to say, hey, you need to pray exactly this long. But we, we pray often and uh, lengthy prayers at times because we are demonstrating that we as finite beings have an utter dependence upon a holy God. Like if we would just get that this morning, that there are not necessarily more important things that we do, but that praying before a holy God, coming to him as a weak man or weak woman is a good and admirable thing. So again, we're going we're gonna to finish up Judges 6 and 7 this morning. If you have a, access to a Bible, go ahead and uh, find that with me. The main point of the text is that, in keeping with this, our weakness is God's platform for the display of his glory. If we would just get that this morning, if the Holy Spirit might impress that upon us this morning, our weakness is God's platform for the display of his glory. Just to catch us up with this particular judge, Gideon, he's the, he's the fifth judge of the Israelites that we've already seen thus far in our study. And Gideon seems to be, if you were here with us last week, uh, he seems to be minding his own business when the angel of the Lord shows up to him under the terebinth tree and says that, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And that through you, I'm going to save the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. Now, that, that was a nice thing for the angel of the Lord to say. I'm sure, I'm sure Gideon thought that, but there was one big problem in Gideon's mind. The Lord wasn't to be found anywhere. If the Lord was with him, why were they in the mess that they were in? Why was Gideon and his people so hungry? Why was he having to hide in a wine press to beat out wheat? Why had his people been plundered year after year for seven long years? So the angel of the Lord gives him a sign. Gideon is given instructions to bring forth a sacrifice, and when he does, the angel of the Lord, he, he reaches out with the tip of his staff, and he touches this sacrifice, the meat and the unleavened cakes, and then what happens? The offering is burnt up, and the angel of the Lord vanishes. So Gideon has his sign. You may not think that the Lord is with you, but he's there. He's in your midst, and he is working on behalf of his people as he always does. 
And so Gideon goes to take care of the idolatry in his own home, in his own backyard, as we saw last week, before taking down the Midianites. He cuts down the Asherah pole. He, he tears down the altar of Baal. And then God protects him from the angry townspeople. And then the text tells us, as, as we closed out last week, that the Spirit of God clothed Gideon. And then Gideon sounds this trumpet for the rest of his clan to come up for battle, the Abizrites, along with the tribe of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So Gideon has amassed this incredibly huge army. He's clothed with the Spirit of God. He's got the memory of how God has already been faithful to him and his people in showing him a sign, and yet... We'll see here in the text in just a moment that Gideon is afraid. That's why I say that although we'll see this incredible victory towards the end of the text this morning, that there is this tenderness as well. That as Gideon and as the Israelites march towards this incredible victory, we see that there is some hesitation on the part of God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. Chapter 6, verse 36, uh, if you'll find that with me. It says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Hear me out, is what Gideon is saying. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And all the ground, and on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now again, Gideon had made this trumpet call for all of the clans around him, all the tribes around him to come. He sounded the trumpet for all of them to join him, and yet Gideon was terrified. He wasn't so sure that the Lord was going to come through for him, even though he said he would, and he had already begun showing him signs that he would. At some point, um, towards the end of last year, Piper, our four-year-old, learned Isaiah 41.10. And in the condensed version uh, that she was taught, it was simply, fear not, for I am with thee. Fear not, for I am with you. And I can't tell you how many times that we've used that particular verse as a catechism for her over the past several months. So Piper will come up to me and she'll say, Daddy, I'm, uh, I'm scared of the storm. I say, Piper, why don't you have to be afraid? Because God is with me. Daddy, I, I'm scared that there is a monster in my room. Piper, there is no monster And why don't we have to be afraid? Because God is with me, Dad. I know that truth. I, as a pastor, know that truth. We've rehearsed it dozens of times as a family. But if I'm honest with you, I'm not always sure that God is going to be there for me. That was Gideon. 
He's called in 32,000 men, the text will tell us in just a moment, but he's not so sure that God is going to come through on his word. And so he figures, if we'll just do one more test, if we'll just do one more test, then I'll have confidence. I'll have the confidence that I need. And, and so he lays a wool blanket outside on the ground and says to God, if it's wet in the morning, but the ground that is usually wet with dew, if it is not wet, then I know that you're going to come through for us, God. And it was so. But Gideon wasn't convinced, was he? He said that he was going to be, but we already see that Gideon, this finite man just like you and I, although God comes through always on his word, we, we don't. And so in the most scientific way, Gideon decides that he's going to reverse the test. This time the ground can be wet with dew, but the fleece is to be dry. If you'll just do this for me, God, I'll know then. And so God did it again. And some have used that scenario over the years to say that, God, that Gideon was testing God to determine his will for his life. Hey, God, what is it that you would have me to do? And so perhaps you and I could do the same. But don't miss what's actually happening here. Gideon isn't wondering what the will of God is. Gideon already knows exactly what the will of God is. The Lord has already told him, look, if you look back in verse 16, that he's going to strike down the Midianites and he's going to use Gideon and the Israelites and it's going to appear as though one man has done it. He knows what the will of God is. Gideon's issue is not that he can't determine what God wants for his life and from his life. It's that Gideon has had so little experience with the one true and living God that he doesn't know he can trust him yet. He doesn't, he doesn't know that when God says that he'll do something on behalf of his covenant people, that he always does what he says. Gideon doesn't yet know that God is always faithful that he never acts in opposition to what he says. He isn't like the pagan gods that Gideon has been used to serving, that Gideon's dad and all the town's people have been used to worshiping, who can't, as we saw in the text last week, they can't contend for themselves. He's not, the, he's not like the idols at Gilgal that Ehud walked through and they did absolutely nothing after he had killed King Eglon. He's not even like Gideon, who said he would believe God as soon as God gave him a sign, but he didn't, and Gideon wanted more. No, the God of the Bible, he always comes through on his word. And yet Gideon still doubts. Thankfully, we serve a God who's faithful when we are fearful and when we need assurance. Let's pick up in verse nine of chapter seven. The same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, hear that, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Now, we'll, we'll pause there for just a second, but try to see this from Gideon's perspective for just a moment. 
Gideon is scared to death. Again, he's already called 32,000 men in for battle. He's supposed to take the Midianites out. And God says, hey, listen, if you were afraid, I'm going to show you a little something. And so now, in front of Gideon, this scared man that we've become accustomed to, is in front of seeing the Midianites and the Amalekites and everyone else in the east, and they are everywhere along the valley, just as they were described as they plundered their crops and livestock each year. They are now in that same number, sitting there, waiting to destroy the Israelites. They are without number, the text says, like the sand that is on the seashore. Now, this is like me who hates airplanes. I hate flying on airplanes, okay? It would be like me going and, and needing to, to go and fly somewhere, and the Lord's saying, Chris, you're going to go to Canada tomorrow, so I have to go and get on an airplane. And when I get into the airplane, God gives me this picture of the pilots of this very plane. And instead of seeing... I've already warned Tom, a strong, calm presence like Tom Thomas flying that airplane. That's what I want to see. I'd rather get a picture from God that there are monkeys, literal monkeys, waiting to fly my plane. Now, if I saw that, and perhaps even if any of you saw that, as you were ready to go to Canada in that airplane, you would not like what you have seen, right? That would be terrifying. You would want, and I certainly would say, I've got to get off this airplane. I'm out of here. God, you asked me if I was afraid, and now you've shown me that thing in which I fear the most. No way. So that's Gideon's perspective at this very moment. It's got to be. He goes down into the valley, and he sees that which he is coming up against, that which God has told him that he's going to deliver into his hand. But Gideon says, man, they're, they're outnumbered like locusts. What are you doing here, God? Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. Don't miss that God is in control of all things, time, events, people, places. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, well, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, how that man understood and interpreted that dream to mean that is only providential, right? That's the only thing we can come up with. This has to be one of the most tender moments in all the book of Judges, that God, in his kindness after empowering one of his children for battle with his spirit, showing him sign after sign that he's going to come through on his word, yet again offers him more assurance. We see a similar compassion towards the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, 
when Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus, is being told by the other disciples that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and that they have seen him. Can you imagine their excitement? Thomas, this is what we have seen. Our Lord and Savior, who was beaten at the hands of angry men, who was buried, has now been resurrected. He's alive. Would you believe it? Now, Thomas had seen Jesus perform miracles. He had seen Jesus perform sign after sign. Thomas had been with Jesus as he himself explained that he would have to die, but that he would be raised again, resurrected to life on the third day. But now standing before the disciples, here's what Thomas says. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, statement. God would have been right in that moment to exclude John from ever having that privilege. Thomas, sorry, especially given the arrogance of his comment. And yet the text says, eight days later, when the doors were locked in the house that they were in, the disciples, including Thomas, were all gathered together and Jesus comes standing in their midst. And here's this moment to berate Thomas for his lack of faith. But you know what? Jesus does? He's compassionate. And he offers weak people assurance. He strengthens Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Christian, unlike Gideon, who was only in a long line of temporary deliverers waiting for the day that the final judge and deliverer would come, we now have the knowledge of Jesus Christ's arrival. It's what the author of Hebrews is getting at in chapter one when he writes, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. You and I have no need for a sign like Gideon needed. We have been given a sign in the fullest of measures in Christ Jesus. And as Jesus says to Thomas about us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God is faithful when we are fearful and need assurance. And second, God is faithful when we are proud and need humbling. Chapter seven, verse one. Go back just a second. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink 
And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian who was below him in the valley. Before we drill down into this part of the passage, I hope it's obvious what God is doing. While God has offered Gideon and his people a gracious, a gracious assurance of the victory that he's going to give to the Israelites, he isn't going to let any one of the Israelites, Gideon included, take credit for the win. God doesn't want, as we see in verse 2, for anyone to say, look what we've done. Look what we've accomplished. You see, God wants his people to know who deserves the glory for salvation. And so God gets to work, removing the very soldiers by whose hand Gideon assumed would bring the victory. First up, verse three, the warriors who are fearful and trembling. And so almost three quarters of Gideon's men leave in that moment and they head back home immediately. Next test. Take the remaining 10,000 of the warriors and take them down to the water, and, and we're going to see how they drink. Those that kneel down to drink, you're going to put them over here. And those that lap up water like dogs, you're going to put them over here. The dog lappers, they numbered 300. And we would assume by looking at a text like this, okay, the dog lappers, they're going home too. We're, we're going to have the rest of these guys, at least they know what they're doing. But God says, no, I'm going to use the 300 men who lap to save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Oh, and we're going to use their trumpets. What's the point in the reduction of the army? It's, it's not because these are the ones that he can work through and these alone that God can work through to bring the Israelites a victory. No, we saw just a several weeks ago in the text that God only needs one. Or he can use just one man like Shamgar with 600 Philistines and, and he can get rid of everyone just with one man. Or we saw that he could use thousands with Deborah and Barak's armies. It's not just these particular people that he needs in some way. God sifts Gideon's army because he knows the status of his people's heart. If they were to win the war with 32,000 men, who'd they associate that victory with? Themselves. And we begin to see the, the deception that is rooted deep into our own natural hearts. That if there is success or there is victory in our life, we often find ourselves looking to ourselves for the success that we, in fact, have done a great thing. But God wants from his people his glory, the glory that he's rightfully due, that we would look to him and say, this victory was not mine, it is all God's. And so Gideon's army has just had a force reduction of more than 99%. And so Gideon and the people and those 300 are forced to trust God instead of numbers, helping him to soon look back and say, this victory was not mine. It was God's. I only trusted and obeyed. 
This is what God told us to do, and so we are doing it. The glory, it's all his. It's not mine. I can't take any of it. This God-ordained pride suppressor was given to the Apostle Paul as well. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, saying, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, of which we don't really know what it was. But Paul says it was a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. Three times he said, I I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Get this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Through the Midianites, God had brought the Israelites very low, and now he is going to lift them up and give them the victory. But he was determined that he, in fact, would receive all the glory. God is faithful when we are proud and need humbling. And third, God is faithful when we are weak and need deliverance. Verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Gideon realizes that God hadn't taken him to to see the size and power of his enemy to scare him. That wasn't the tactic that God was using. God doesn't need to use scare tactics in that way. He had taken him down to see the enemy territory so that he could hear a providential conversation of reassurance. To my daughter, I don't just tell her over and over and over again, Piper, there are no monsters. What do I do? I demonstrate it. And it might look silly when I peer under her bed or when I go and walk over to her closet and shut that closet door. When I walk over to the lamp and turn that lamp on for her and when I lay down beside her, brother and sister, God is the great reassurer. Gideon realizes this, and he begins to worship. It's not as though God just says over and over again, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, so you must trust and obey. He even takes us as his weak, feeble, needing, reassuring children, and he walks beside us. He lies down beside us. He turns the lamp on for us. He looks under the bed for us. He demonstrates his reassurance for us. And with this reassurance that he so desperately needed, Gideon confidently makes a call for action. Back in verse 15. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 
So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. Now they've come at an opportune time, mind you. It's the middle of the night. It's difficult to see. It's difficult for the army, the Midianites, to be on high alert, especially in the middle of a guard switch. The question is, who, who exactly is in charge? Is it the guards that are going off watch or is it the guards that are coming on watch? Who is in charge? And so Gideon's small band of soldiers is divided into three different parts with their weapons, trumpets, and torches. And the text says they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Verse 20, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. Now, the Midianites had absolutely no idea what was going on. It's pitch black outside. Remember, Gideon and his servant Purah had already been down and no one had noticed them. They, they think thousands of Israelites are probably behind the cries and the noise of all the trumpets and they've made it into this camp that is already pitch black dark. And so verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as uh, Bethshita towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Melalah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all, all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now think about it. In the end, it wasn't that 300 out of 32,000 original warriors won the victory. No, the 300 men, what did they do? They just stood around the camp, divided into three, and they blew their trumpets, and they smashed the jars, and they stood there. Those 300 in that moment killed no one. Not one of the 300 could head home and say, we did it. Look what we've accomplished. Look at the greatness that we have done for you and for the Lord. No, they could only say, we watched. We watched and we stood while the Lord God of Israel brought us victory. I'd encourage you as just an edifying practice in the life of our church to invite others to share their story, their testimony, how God saved them. Ask them, ask them to share that with you. Invite people into your homes that are part of our church and ask them to share their story with you. How is it that God has saved you? And get to know them. Ask them about their faith as, as I hear your stories. The particulars, they're all different. God has given us so many different lives to live. But the theme is always the same. I was heading towards destruction. 
the idols of sex, power, money, drugs, pride, lust, you name it. I was going that way. I was in rebellion towards a holy God. And maybe it didn't all look the same because some of you were seven and some of you were 77 when God saved you. But no matter who it is, when the story is told about how God has saved you, it is always said, and then God intervened. And then God opened my eyes. And then God gave me a new heart. He enabled me to trust Christ Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of my sins. He allowed me to repent of my sins. Why? Because Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of work so that no one may boast. That's why every one of your stories, although the particulars are different, they all begin to sound the same because it is God alone who saves a sinful, rebellious man or woman and draws them into his family, offering them forgiveness because of the merit of his son, Christ Jesus. Like the Israelites that day, there is absolutely nothing that you or I could do or could have done to earn our own deliverance. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I want you to hear that. You must be born again, the Bible tells us. God must give you a new heart, so ask him for one. And when he gives it to you, you trust in Christ by faith, it won't be because you've done a thing. Three questions that we are driven to by our passage this morning. The first is this, are you afraid? Are you afraid? I don't know about you, but I want to move personally more from rehearsing the truths about God with my children to believing them more and more and acting in accordance with them for myself. James tells us that we are not to be hearers only of the word, but we must be doers or else we are just fooling ourselves. That, I think that's why Jesus in Mark chapter four has his disciples with him on the boat in the Sea of Galilee when a great storm arose. Jesus happened to be asleep and his disciples are scared out of their everlasting minds. Sure, they've seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles already. Yes, they have seen Jesus debate with the best of the Pharisees about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They have heard truth after truth about the one true living God. But now, before them, God is asking that they might put those truths that they've heard about, that they would probably say that they believe in, into practice. Do they actually know who they've been discipled by? Do they understand who is sleeping in the boat in front of them? Do they understand Jesus's power and might? They finally get Jesus awake and he quickly calms the winds and the storm by saying a simple phrase, peace, be still. He then asked his disciples, why are you so afraid? Why do you still have so little faith? It's then that they're filled with a different kind of fear, a holy fear. And they begin to say to one another, who then is this 
that even the wind and the seas obey him. The disciples are beginning to see that this is not just a man who is on the boat in front of them, but it is God. Are you afraid, dear Christian? It is the God of the universe who has saved you, who has called you into his family because of his great mercy and love for you and has given you work to do for his purposes and his glory. If you are afraid, the Bible in its entirety is clear of this message. For the Christian, our great reassurer. Maybe you're like Gideon and you've been trying to use all sorts of reasons to get out from underneath from doing what God has specifically commanded you to do. And you've been trying to put out all these tests for God. God, if you'll just show me this or that, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. I know one of the things that stick out to me so, so vividly still uh, 34 years into life is when I was playing t-ball. I remember, and I do this still today in different areas, but I remember holding that bat and saying, God, if you would just give me a home run, I promise, or bat, just let me hit the ball. If you'll do that, then I'll serve you with everything that I have. God, if you'll just let me get the ball, then I will obey mom and dad, I promise. Some of us fill our days with asking God to do these particular things. God, if you'll just show me, then I'll have that conversation with the coworker that you've had on my heart for some time now. Then I'll do it. If my coworker just says, I love Denzel Washington, then I'll do it. And your coworker never says it. You say, God, sorry. You didn't come through. You didn't come through for me like I asked you to do because I'm sovereign here. Don't you realize, God? God has already told you some things in his word to do, Christian. You're to do it, to go and make disciples empowered by the spirit of all nations, and yet you don't, you won't. You say, where's my sign? Why hasn't he come through for me like he did his child servant, Judge Gideon? Hear this gently. That, brothers and sisters, is why God has given us the meal of communion that we partake in every single week. This means of grace. It's the moment where we're reminded together as God's people, as the body of Christ, that he knows that we're fearful. We recognize that. And that he's in control, so much so that he sent his son, Christ Jesus, to bear the penalty that we deserve to bear. And he took it upon himself, and he gave us his righteousness instead. That's what we remember in that meal, that God has not left you alone. He ha he's given you the ultimate sign in his son's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Second question, are you proud? God knew that if he let 32,000 men see victory, they would have traded in the honor and glory due him for themselves. And so what did he do? He cut the number of the army by 99%, and he just left 300 men to fight. Fight. Pride is a sin that we so often miss as we look for the idols in our lives. Again, even Jesus' disciples themselves struggled with it. 
Even Jesus' disciples' mothers struggled with it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, James and John's mother, the sons of Zebedee, their, their mother asked Jesus about her son sitting at the right or left side of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom, to which Jesus replies, you do not know what you're asking. He goes on to explain that those who are great in the kingdom must be servants. Whoever will be made first must be a slave because that's how Jesus did it. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's not the proud who are going to inherit the earth, but it is the meek. God will humble the proud, but will exalt the weak. Isn't it amazing in some odd way that we can recognize our fear and yet still be filled with pride? Pray to God that he might humble you now so that you will be raised up in due time. Finally, are you weak? Are you weak? The natural man in us wants to say no to that question every single day. It wants to say, I'm strong and I've got this. That's why I put up this persona that I've got everything in this life that God has given to me. I've got it all figured out. I've got it all taken care of. Nothing can come up against me. No situation am I going to find myself in that I cannot conquer on my own and in my own strength. Human success and great abilities can often lead us to the wrong conclusions about who we are in Christ. You see, if you've been given any success in this life, if you've been given anything at all, maybe you wouldn't consider it success, but if you've been given anything, it is so that you would use it to point to the glory of God. That's why you've been given it. When Gideon realized what he had been given, how in his weakness the Lord reassured him, how the Lord was going to use him to bring victory to his people, how the Lord was staying true to his word through him, what did Gideon do? Finally, after all that, he worshiped. Your abilities, you should say humbly before the Lord, I would have nothing if it were not for the grace of God in my life. So I will use them for your purposes, God, and your purposes alone. And my driving question should be before the Lord, how, God, can I use the abilities that you have given me for your glory? Your money? You should say, I have nothing. I would have nothing if it were not for the grace of God in my life. So I will use this money, however little or however great, for your purposes and your glory. The question that we should all be asking with our money is, God, how can I honor you for them? Is to feel your need for him. God asks nothing of you for salvation. Salvation belongs to God alone. You only need to realize your utter helplessness and the weaknesses apart from him. You only need to know that you are in need of a savior and Christian, just like the apostle Paul. We continue on in sanctification in great weakness for that is when God shows his strength in us and through us. As you make war on the sin in your life, we talked about that greatly last week. If you weren't here, I would love for you to go and listen to that message and offer me any feedback that the Spirit might be working on or doing in your life. But as, as you make war on, on the sin in your life in weakness, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is 
faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, know this, child of God, he will also always, the text implies, provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember, as we see with Gideon's army of 300 men who lap water like dogs, armed with trumpets and a torch, glass jars, the enemies of God's people are not as strong as they may appear. As we walk alongside of others in the family that God has saved us into, it is good that we keep in front of ourselves and others that the body of Christ has never been an assemblage of superheroes. That it is not that we are trying to one-up one another in what we can do before the Lord, but rather it is a weak people who have been, we are a weak people who have been saved by grace through faith by a strong and steady Christ. Don't miss that. So when you find victory over your sin, don't look to yourself and say, look what I've done. I've stopped this. I've beat it. I've mortified that sin. Look what I've done. The victory, it's all mine. No, if there is any victory, if you have any victory in Christ, it is because God has given it to you and you, Christian, are to give God the glory. When your brother finds victory over sin, you give God the glory. Would we remember together, our weakness is God's platform for the display of his glory. Let's pray. Father, you are a faithful God. We could not cry that or offer that word and phrase to you enough. For you are always deserving of every bit of our praise, every ounce of our being. You deserve every bit of the glory that we often want to take for ourselves. You deserve it all. God, I thank you that you are faithful to your children even when we need reassuring. Even when we need building up, that you are faithful to your children even when we are lacking in faith, even when we are lacking in belief, even when we are proud. God, I thank you that you are building your church, a church full of weak men that serve a great God who has brought the victory for us, his children, in his son, Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you might, by your spirit, empower us to be the people that you've called us to be, to take the resources, time, ability, skills that you've given us and instead of looking to ourselves saying, look what we've accomplished. Look at the success that I've garnered in this life. Look at my portfolios. Think about the income that you've given me. Think about the job that you've given me, the success, all of it. It's mine. And God, would we instead, as humbled people, meek, lowly servants, slaves offer up to you 
by your spirit. God, the glory is all yours. You deserve it all. Father, forgive us as a people for making a mockery of your name. Even in, in your name saying, look what I've done. Forgive us. Help us to transfer, transfer that, the glory that is due you, to your name. And God, we thank you for the assurance that you've offered to us, the confidence that you've given us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we confidently pray. Amen.